Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks so much for joining me. Tonight we continue in the second of three parts with our story, Tom Outland's story, from Willa Cather's 1925 novel, The Professor's House. Last time we met Tom, a young cowpuncher in the American Southwest. On a cattle drive, he sees the Blue Mesa, a great landmark in the flat country, and he and his partner become fascinated by this tremendous and forbidding structure that they are told no one has ever managed to climb. It becomes an obsession, and they are determined to find a way to reach the top. In the second episode, we learn what they discover. Tom Outland's Story by Willa Cather Chapter 4 Blake and I got over the mesa together for the first time in May. We carried with us all the food we could, and an axe and spade. It took us several days to find a trail leading from the bottom of the box canyon up to the cliff city. There were gaps in it. It was broken by ledges too steep for a man to climb. Lying beside one of these, we found an old dried cedar trunk with toe notches cut in it. That was a plain suggestion. We felled some trees and threw them up over the gaps in the path. Toward the end of the week, when our provisions were getting low, we made the last lap in our climb and stepped upon the ledge that was the floor of the cliff city. In front of the cluster of buildings, there was an open space like a courtyard. Along the outer edge of this yard ran a low stone wall. In some places the wall had fallen away from the weather, but the buildings themselves sat so far back under the rim rock that the rain had never beat on them. In thunderstorms I've seen water come down in sheets over the face of that cavern without a drop touching the village. The courtyard was not choked by vegetation, for there was no soil. It was bare rock, with a few old flat-topped cedars growing out of the cracks, and a little pale grass. But everything seemed open and clean, and the stones, I remember, were warm to the touch, smooth and pleasant to feel. The outer walls of the houses were intact, except where sometimes an outjutting corner had crumbled. They were made of dressed stones, plastered inside and out with dobe, and were tinted in light colors, pink and pale yellow and tan. Here and there a cedar log in the ceiling had given way and let the second-story chamber down into the first. Except for that, there was little rubbish or disorder. As Blake remarked, wind and sun are good housekeepers. The village had never been sacked by an enemy, certainly. Inside the little rooms, water-jars and bowls stood about unbroken, and yucca-fiber mats were on the floors. We could give only a hurried look over the place, as our food was exhausted and we had to get back over the river before dark. We went about softly, tried not to disturb anything, even the silence. Besides the tower, there seemed to be about thirty little separate buildings. Behind the cluster of houses was a kind of back courtyard, running from end to end of the cavern, a long, low, twilit space that got gradually lower toward the back until the rim rock met the floor of the cavern exactly like the sloping roof of an attic. There was perpetual twilight back there, cool, shadowy, very grateful after the blazing sun in the front courtyard. 
When we entered it, we heard a soft, trickling sound, and we came upon a spring that welled out of the rock into a stone basin, and then ran off through a cobble-lined gutter and dripped down the cliffs. I've never anywhere tasted water like it, as cold as ice, and so pure. Long afterward Father Duchesne came out to spend a week with us on the mesa. He always carried a small drinking-glass with him, and he used to fill it at the spring and take it out into the sunlight. The water looked like liquid crystal, absolutely colorless, without the slight brownish or greenish tint that water nearly always has. It threw off the sunlight like a diamond. Beside this spring stood some of the most beautifully shaped water jars we ever found. I gave Mrs. St. Peter one of them, standing there just as if they'd been left yesterday. In the back court we found a great many things besides jars and bowls, a row of grinding stones, and several clay ovens, very much like those the Mexicans use today. There were charred bones and charcoal, and the roof was thick with soot all the way along. It was evidently a kind of common kitchen where they roasted and baked and probably gossiped. There were corn cobs everywhere, and ears of corn with the kernels still on them, little like popcorn. We found dried beans, too, and strings of pumpkin seeds and plum seeds, and a cupboard full of little implements made of turkey bones. Late that afternoon Roddy and I crossed the river and got back to our cabin to rest for a few days. The second time we went over we found a long winding trail leading from the cliff city up to the top of the mesa, a narrow path worn deep into the stone ledges that overhung the village, then running back into the wood of stunted pinions on the summit. Following this to the north end of the mesa, we found what was left of an old road down to the plain. But making this road passable was a matter of weeks, and we had to get workmen and tools from Tarpon. It was a narrow footpath, barely wide enough for a sure-footed mule, and it wound down through Black Canyon, dropping in loops along the face of terrifying cliffs. About a hundred feet above the river it ended, broke right off into the air. A wall of rock had fallen away there, probably from a landslide. That last piece of road cost us three weeks' hard work and most of our winter wages. We kept the workmen on long enough to build us a tight log cabin on the mesa top, a little way back from the ledge that hung over the cliff city. While we were engaged in road-building, we made a shortcut from our cabin down to the cliff city and Cow Canyon. Just over the cliff city there was a crack in the ledge, a sort of manhole, and in this we hung a ladder of pine trunks spliced together with light chains, leaving the branch forks for footholds. By climbing down this ladder we saved about two miles of winding trail, and dropped almost directly into Cow Canyon, where we meant always to leave one of the horses grazing. Taking this route, we could at any time make a quick exit from the mesa. We were used to swimming the river now, and in summer our wet clothes dried very quickly. Bill Hook, the liveryman at Tarpon, who'd sheltered old Henry when he was down and out, proved a good friend to us. He got our workmen back and forth for us, brought our supplies up onto the mesa on his pack mules, and when one of us had to stay in town overnight, he let us sleep in his hay barn to save a hotel bill. He knew our expenses were heavy, 
and did everything for us at a bottom price. By the first of July our money was nearly gone, but we had our road made and our cabin built on top of the mesa. We brought old Henry up by the new horse trail and began housekeeping. We were now ready for what we called excavating. We built wide shelves all around our sleeping room, and there we put the smaller articles we found in the Cliff City. We numbered each specimen, and in my day book I wrote down just where and in what condition we had found it and what we thought it had been used for. I got a merchant's ledger in Tarpon, and every night after supper, while Roddy read the newspapers, I sat down at the kitchen table and wrote up an account of the day's work. Henry, besides doing the housekeeping, was very eager to help us in the ruins, as he called them. He was more patient than we, and would dig with his fingers half a day to get a pot out of a rubbish pile without breaking it. After all, the old man had a wider knowledge of the world than either of us, and it often came in handy. When we were working in a pale pink house with two stories and a sort of balcony before the upper windows, we came on a closet in the wall of the upstairs room. In this were a number of curious things, among them a deerskin bag full of little tools. Henry said at once they were surgical instruments, a stone lancet, a bunch of fine bone needles, wooden forceps, and a catheter. One thing we knew about these people, they hadn't built their town in a hurry. Everything proved their patience and deliberation. The cedar joists had been felled with stone axes and rubbed smooth with sand. The little poles that lay across them and held up the clay floor of the chamber above were smoothly polished. The door lintels were carefully fitted. The doors were stone slabs held in place by wooden bars fitted into hasps. The clay dressing that covered the stone walls was tinted, and some of the chambers were frescoed in geometrical patterns, one color laid on another. In one room was a painted border, little tents like Indian teepees in brilliant red. But the really splendid thing about our city, the thing that made it delightful to work there, and must have made it delightful to live there, was the setting. The town hung like a bird's nest in the cliff, looking off into the box canyon below, and beyond into the wide valley we called Cow Canyon, facing an ocean of clean air. A people who had the hardihood to build there, and who lived day after day looking down on such grandeur, who came and went by those hazardous trails, must have been, as we often told each other, a fine people. But what had become of them? What catastrophe had overwhelmed them? They hadn't moved away, for they had taken none of their belongings, not even their clothes. Oh yes, we found clothes, yucca moccasins, and what seemed like cotton cloth woven in black and white. Never any wool, but sheepskins tanned with the fleece on them. They may have been mountain sheep, the mesa was full of them. We talked of shooting one for meat, but we never did. When a mountain sheep comes out on a ledge hundreds of feet above you with his trumpet horns, there's something noble about him. He looks like a priest. We didn't want to shoot at them and make them shy. We liked to see them. We shot a wild cow when we wanted fresh meat. At last we came upon one of the original inhabitants, not a skeleton, but a dried human body, a woman. She was not in the Cliff City, 
we found her in a little group of houses stuck up in a high arch we called the Eagle's Nest. She was lying on a yucca mat, partly covered with rags, and she had dried into a mummy in that water-drinking air. We thought she had been murdered. There was a great wound in her side. The ribs stuck out through the dried flesh. Her mouth was open as if she were screaming, and her face, through all those years, had kept a look of terrible agony. Part of the nose was gone, but she had plenty of teeth, not one missing, and a great deal of coarse black hair. Her teeth were even and white, and so little worn that we thought she must have been a young woman. Henry named her mother Eve, and we called her that. We put her in a basket, and let her down with great care, and kept her in a chamber in the Cliff City. Yes, we found three other bodies, but afterward. One day, working in the Cliff City, we came upon a stone slab at one end of the cavern that seemed to lead straight into the rock. It was set in cement, and when we loosened it, we found it opened into a small dark chamber. In this there had been a platform of fine cedar poles laid side by side, but it had crumbled. In the wreckage were three bodies, one man and two women, wrapped in yucca fiber, all in the same posture, and apparently prepared for burial. These were the bodies of old people. We believe they were among the aged who were left behind when the tribe went down to live on their farms in the summer season, that they had died in the absence of the villagers, and were put into this mortuary chamber to await the return of the tribe when they would have their funeral rites. Probably these people burned their dead. Of course, an archaeologist could have told a great deal about that civilization from those bodies. But they never got to an archaeologist, at least not on this side of the world. Chapter 5 The first of August came, and everything was going well with us. We hadn't met with any bad luck, and though we had very little money left, there was Blake's untouched savings account in the bank at Pardee, and we had plenty of credit in Tarpon. The merchants there took an interest and were friendly, but the little new moon that looked so innocent brought us trouble. We lost old Henry, and in a terrible way. From the first we'd been a little bothered by rattlesnakes. You generally find them about old stone quarries and old masonry. We had got them pretty well cleared out of the Cliff City, hadn't seen one for weeks. But one Sunday we took Henry and went on an exploring expedition at the north end of the mesa, along Black Canyon. We caught sight of a little bunch of ruins we'd never noticed before, and made a foolhardy scramble to get up to them. We almost made it, and then there was a stretch of rock wall so smooth we couldn't climb it without a ladder. I was the tallest of the three, and Henry was the lightest. We thought he could get up there if he stood on my shoulders. He was standing on my back, his head just above the floor of the cavern, groping for something to hoist himself by, when a snake struck him from the ledge, struck him square in the forehead. It happened in a flash. He came down and brought the snake with him. By the time we picked him up and turned him over, his face had begun to swell. In ten minutes it was purple, and he was so crazy it took the two of us to hold him and keep him from jumping down the chasm. He was struck so near the brain that there was nothing to do. It lasted nearly two hours. Then we carried him home. 
Roddy dropped down the ladder into Cow Canyon, caught his horse, and rode into Tarpon for the coroner. Father Duchesne was preaching there at the mission church that Sunday and came back with him. We buried Henry on the mesa. Father Duchesne stayed on with us a week to keep us company. We were so cut up that we were almost ready to quit, but he had been planning to come out to see our find for a long time, and we got our minds off our trouble. He worked hard every day. He went over everything we'd done and examined everything minutely, the pottery, cloth, stone implements, and the remains of food. He measured the skulls of the mummies and declared they had good skulls. He cut down one of the old cedars that grew exactly in the middle of the deep trail worn in the stone and counted the rings under his pocket microscope. You couldn't count them with the unassisted eye, for growing out of a tiny crevice in the rock as that tree did, the increase of each year was so scant that the rings were invisible except with the glass. The tree he cut down registered 336 years' growth, and it could have begun to grow in that well-worn path only after human feet had ceased to come and go there. Why had they ceased? That question puzzled him, too. Smallpox? Any epidemic would have left unburied bodies. Father Duchesne suggested what Dr. Ripley in Washington afterwards surmised, that the tribe had been exterminated, not here in their stronghold, but in their summer camp, down among the farms across the river. Father Duchesne had been among the Indians nearly twenty years then. He had seventeen Indian pueblos in his parish, and he spoke several Indian dialects. He was able to explain the use of many of the implements we found, especially those used in religious ceremonies. The night before he left us, he summed up the result of his week's study something like this. The two square towers on the mesa top, to which you have given little attention, were unquestionably granaries. Under the stones and earth fallen from the walls, there is a quantity of dried corn on the ear. Not a great harvest, for life must have come to an end here in the summer, when the new crop was not yet garnered and the last year's grain was getting low. The semicircular ridge on the mesa top, which you can see distinctly among the pinions when the sun is low and brings it into high relief, is the buried wall of an amphitheater where probably religious exercises and games took place. I advise you not to dig into it. It is probably the most important thing here and should be left for scholars to excavate. The tower you so much admire in the cliff village may have been a watchtower as you think, but from the curious placing of those narrow slits, like windows, I believe it was used for astronomical observations. I am inclined to think that your tribe were a superior people. Perhaps they were not so when they first came upon this mesa, but in an orderly and secure life they developed considerably the arts of peace. There is evidence on every hand that they lived for something more than food and shelter. They had an appreciation of comfort and went even further than that. Their life, compared to that of our roving Navajos, must have been quite complex. There is unquestionably a distinct feeling for design in what you call the Cliff City. Buildings are not grouped like that by pure accident, though convenience probably had much to do with it. Convenience often dictates very sound design. The workmanship on both the wood and stone of the dwellings is good. 
The shapes and decoration of the water jars and food bowls is better than in any of the existing pueblos I know, better even than the pottery made at Acoma. I have seen a collection of early pottery from the island of Crete. Many of the geometrical decorations on these jars are not only similar, but, if my memory is trustworthy, identical. I see your tribe as a provident, rather thoughtful people, who made their livelihood secure by raising crops and fowl. The great number of turkey bones and feathers are evidence that they had domesticated the wild turkey. With grain in their storerooms, and mountain sheep and deer for their quarry, they rose gradually from the condition of savagery. With the proper variation of meat and vegetable diet, they developed physically and improved in the primitive arts. They had looms and mills, and experimented with dyes. At the same time, they possibly declined in the arts of war, in brute strength and ferocity. I see them here, isolated, cut off from other tribes, working out their destiny, making their mesa more and more worthy to be a home for man, purifying life by religious ceremonies and observances, caring respectfully for their dead, protecting the children, doubtless entertaining some feelings of affection and sentiment for this stronghold where they were at once so safe and so comfortable, where they had practically overcome the worst hardships that primitive man had to fear. They were perhaps too far advanced for their time and environment. They were probably wiped out, utterly exterminated, by some roving Indian tribe without culture or domestic virtues, some horde that fell upon them in their summer camp and destroyed them for their hides and clothing and weapons, or from mere love of slaughter. I feel sure that these brutal invaders never even learned of the existence of this mesa, honeycombed with habitations. If they had come here, they would have destroyed. They killed and went their way. What I cannot understand is why you have not found more human remains. The three bodies you found in the mortuary chamber were prepared for burial by the old people who were left behind. But what of the last survivors? It is possible that when autumn wore on and no one returned from the farms, the aged, banded together, went in search of their people and perished in the plain. Like you, I feel a reverence for this place. Wherever humanity has made the hardest of all stands and lifted itself out of mere brutality is a sacred spot. Your people were cut off here without the influence of example or emulation, with no incentive but some natural yearning for order and security. They built themselves into this mesa and humanized it. Father Duchesne warmly agreed with Blake that I ought to go to Washington and make some report to the government, so that the proper specialists would be sent out to study the remains we had found. You must go to the director of the Smithsonian Institution, he said. He will send us an archaeologist who will interpret all that is obscure to us. He will revive this civilization in a scholarly work. It may be that you will have thrown light on some important points in the history of your country. After he left us, Blake and I began to make definite plans for my trip to Washington. Blake was to work on the railroad that summer and save as much money as possible. The expense for my journey would be paid out of what we called the jackpot account in the bank at Pardee. All our further expenses on the Mesa would be paid by the government. Roddy often hinted that we would get a substantial reward of some kind. When we broke or lost anything at our work, he used to smile and say, 
Never mind. I guess our Uncle Sam will make that good to us. We had a beautiful autumn that year, soft, sunny, like a dream. Even up there in the air we had so little wind that the gold hung on the poplars and quaking aspens late in November. We stayed out on the mesa until after Christmas. We wanted our archaeologist, when he came, to find everything in good order. We cleared up any litter we'd made in digging things out, stored all the specimens, even the mummies, in our cabin, and padlocked the doors and windows before we left it. I had written up my daybook carefully to the very end, had even written out some of Father Duchesne's deductions. This book I left in concealment on the mesa. I climbed up to the eagle's nest, in which we had found the mummy of the murdered woman we called Mother Eve, where I had noticed a particularly neat little cupboard in the wall. I put my book in this niche and sealed it up with cement. Mother Eve had greatly interested Father Duchesne, by the way. He laughed and said she was well named. He didn't believe her death could throw any light on the destruction of her people. I seem to smell, he said slyly, a personal tragedy. Perhaps when the tribe went down to the summer camp, Our Lady was sick and would not go. Perhaps her husband thought it worth while to return unannounced from the farm some night and found her in improper company. The young man may have escaped. In primitive society, the husband is allowed to punish an unfaithful wife with death. When the first snow began to fly, we said goodbye to our mesa and rode into Tarpon. It took several days to outfit me for my journey to Washington. We bought a trunk, I'd never owned one in my life, and a supply of white shirts, an overcoat that was as heavy as lead and just about as cold, and two suits of clothes. That conscienceless trader worked off on me a claw-hammer coat he must have had in stock for twenty years. He easily persuaded Roddy that it was the proper thing for dress occasions. I think Roddy expected that I would be received by ambassadors. Perhaps I did. Roddy drew six hundred dollars out of the bank to stake me and bought my ticket and pullman through to Washington. He went to the station with me the morning I left, and a hard handshake was goodbye. For a long while after my train pulled out, I could see our mesa bulking up blue on the skyline. I hated to leave it, but I reflected that it had taken care of itself without me for a good many hundred years. When I saw it again, I told myself, I would have done my duty by it. I would bring back with me men who would understand it, who would appreciate it, and dig out all its secrets. Chapter 6 I got off the train, just behind the Capitol building, one cold, bright January morning. I stood for a long while, watching the white dome against a flashing blue sky, with a very religious feeling. After I had walked about a little and seen the parks, so green though it was winter, and the treasury building and the war and navy, I decided to put off my business for a little and give myself a week to enjoy this city. That was the most sensible thing I did while I was there. For that week I was wonderfully happy. My sightseeing over, I got to work. First I went to see the representative from our district to ask for letters of introduction. He was cordial enough, but he gave me bad advice. He was very positive that I ought to report to the Indian Commission and gave me a letter to the commissioner. The commissioner was out of town, and I wasted three days waiting about his office, being questioned by clerks and secretaries. They were not very busy and seemed to find me entertaining. 
I thought they were interested in my mission, and interest was what I wanted to arouse. I didn't know how influential these people might be. They talked as if they had great authority. I had brought along in my telescope bag some good pieces of pottery, not the best, I was afraid of accident, but some that were representative, and all the photographs Blake and I had taken. We had only a small Kodak, and these pictures didn't make much show, looked indeed like grubby little doby ruins such as one can find almost anywhere. They gave no idea of the beauty and vastness of the setting. The clerks at the Indian Commission seemed very curious about everything and made me talk a lot. I was green and didn't know any better. But when one of the fellows there tried to get me to give him my best bowl for his cigarette ashes, I began to suspect the nature of their interest. At last the commissioner returned, but he had pressing engagements, and I hung around several days more before he would see me. After questioning me for about half an hour, he told me that his business was with living Indians, not dead ones, and that his office should have informed me of that in the beginning. He advised me to go back to our congressman and get a letter to the Smithsonian Institution. I packed up my pottery and got out of the place feeling pretty sore. The head clerk followed me down the corridor and asked me what I'd take for that little bowl he'd taken a fancy to. He said it had no market value. I'd find Washington full of such things. There were cases of them in the cellar at the Smithsonian that they'd never taken the trouble to unpack. Hadn't any place to put them. I went back to my congressman. This time he wasn't so friendly as before, but he gave me a letter to the Smithsonian. There I went through the same experience. The director couldn't be seen except by appointment, and his secretary had to be convinced that your business was important before he would give you an appointment with his chief. After the first morning I found it difficult to see even the secretary. He was always engaged. I was told to take a seat and wait, but when he was disengaged he was hurrying off to luncheon. I would sit there all morning with a group of unfortunate people, girls who wanted to get typewriting to do, nice, polite old men who wanted to be taken out on surveys and expeditions next summer. The secretary would at last come out with his overcoat on and would hurry through the waiting room reading a letter or a report without looking up. The office assistants cheered me along, and I kept this up for some days, sitting all morning in that room, studying the patterns of the rugs and the shoes of the patient waiters who came as regularly as I. One day after the secretary had gone out, his stenographer, a nice little Virginia girl, came and sat down in an empty chair next to mine and began talking to me. She wasn't pretty, but her kind eyes and soft southern voice took hold of me at once. She wanted to know what I had in my telescope and why I was there and where I came from and all about it. Nearly everyone else had gone out to lunch. That seemed to be the one thing they did regularly in Washington. And we had the waiting room to ourselves. I talked to her a good deal. Her name was Virginia Ward. She was a tiny little thing, but she had lovely eyes and such gentle ways. She seemed indignant that I had been put off so long after having come so far. "'Now you just let me fix it up for you,' she said at last. "'Mr. Wagner is bothered by a great many foolish people who waste his time, and he is suspicious. The best way will be for you to invite him to lunch with you. I'll arrange it. I keep a list of his appointments, and I know he is not engaged for luncheon tomorrow. 
I'll tell him that he is to lunch with a nice boy who has come all the way from New Mexico to inform the department about an important discovery. I'll tell him to meet you at the Shoreham at one. That's expensive, but it would be no good to invite him to a cheap place. And remember, you must ask him to order the luncheon. It will maybe cost you ten dollars, but it will get you somewhere. I felt grateful to the nice little thing. She wasn't older than I. I begged her, wouldn't she please come to lunch with me herself today and talk to me? Oh, no, she said, blushing red as a poppy. Why, I'm afraid you think, I told her, I didn't think anything but how nice she was to me and how lonesome I was. She went with me, but she wouldn't go to any swell place. She told me a great many useful things. If you want to get attention from anybody in Washington, she said, ask them to lunch. People here will do almost anything for a good lunch. But the director of the Smithsonian, for instance, I said, surely you don't mean that the high-up ones like that? Why would he want to bother with a cowpuncher from New Mexico when he can lunch with scientists and ambassadors? She had a pretty little fluttery southern laugh. You just name a hotel like the Shoreham to the director and try it. There has to be somebody to pay for a lunch, and the scientists and ambassadors don't do that when they can avoid it. He'd accept your invitation, and the next time he went to dine with the Secretary of State, he'd make a nice little story of it and paint you up so pretty you'd hardly know yourself. When I asked her whether I'd better take my pottery—it was there under the table between us—to the Shoreham to show Mr. Wagner, she tittered again. I wouldn't bother— if you show him enough of the Shoreham pottery, that will be more effective. The next morning, when the secretary arrived at his office, he stopped by my chair and said he understood he had an engagement with me for one o'clock. That was a good idea, he added. His mind was freer when he was away from office routine. I had been in Washington twenty-two days when I took the secretary out to lunch. It was an excellent lunch. We had a bottle of Chateau de Chem. I'd never heard of such a wine before, but I remember it because it cost five dollars. I drank only one glass, and that pleased him too, for he drank the rest. Though he was friendly and talked a great deal, my heart sank lower, for he wouldn't let me explain my mission to him at all. He kept telling me that he knew all about the Southwest. He had been sent by the Smithsonian to conduct parties of European archaeologists through all the showplaces— Frijoles and Canyon de Celli and Taos and the Hopi Pueblos. When some Austrian archduke had gone to hunt in the Pecos Range, he had been sent by his chief and the German ambassador to manage the tour, and he had done it with such success that both he and the director were given decorations from the Austrian crown in recognition of his services. Then I had to listen to a long story about how well he was treated by the Archduke when he went to Vienna with his chief the following summer. I had to hear about balls and receptions, and the names and titles of all the people he met at the Duke's country estate. I was amazed and ashamed that a man of fifty, a man of the world, a scholar with ever so many degrees, should find it worth his while to show off before a boy— and a boy of such humble pretensions who didn't know how to eat the hors d'oeuvres any more than if an assortment of coconuts had been set before him with no hammer. Imagine my astonishment when, as he was drinking his liqueur, he said carelessly, "'By the way, I was successful in arranging an interview with the director for you. He will see you at four o'clock on Monday.' That was Thursday, 
I spent the time between then and Monday trying to find out something more about the kind of people I had come among. I persuaded Virginia Ward to go to the theater with me, and she told me that it always took a long while to get anything through with the director, that I mustn't lose heart, and she would always be glad to cheer me up. She lived with her mother, a widow lady, and they had me come to dinner and were very nice to me. At this time I was living with a young married couple who interested me very much, for they were unlike any people I had ever known. The husband was in office, as they say there. He had some position in the war department. How it did used to depress me to see all the hundreds of clerks come pouring out of that big building at sunset. Their lives seemed so petty, so slavish. The couple I lived with gave me a prejudice against that kind of life. I couldn't help knowing a great deal about their affairs. They had only a small flat and rented me one room of it, so I was very much in their confidence and couldn't help overhearing. They asked me not to mention the fact that I paid rent, as they had told their friends I was making them a visit. It was like that in everything. They spent their lives trying to keep up appearances and to make his salary do more than it could. When they weren't discussing where she should go in the summer, they talked about the promotions in his department, how much the other clerks got, and how they spent it, and how many dresses their wives had. And there was always a struggle going on for an invitation to a dinner or a reception or even a tea party. When once they got the invitation they had been scheming for, then came the terrible question of what Mrs. Bixby should wear. The Secretary of War gave a reception. There was to be dancing and a great showing of foreign uniforms. The Bixbys were in painful suspense until they got a card. Then, for a week, they talked about nothing but what Mrs. Bixby was going to wear. They decided that, for such an occasion, she must have a new dress. Bixby borrowed twenty-five dollars from me, and took his lunch hour to go shopping with his wife and choose the satin. That seemed to me very strange. In New Mexico, the Indian boys sometimes went to a trader's with their wives and bought shawls or calico, and we thought it rather contemptible. On the night of the reception, the Bixbys set off gaily in a cab. The dress they considered a great success. But they had bad luck. Somebody spilt claret cup on Mrs. Bixby's skirt before the evening was half over, and when they got home that night, I heard her weeping and reproaching him for having been so upset about it and looking at nothing but her ruined dress all evening. She said he cried out when it happened. I don't doubt it. Every cab... Every party was more than they could afford. If he lost an umbrella, it was a real misfortune. He wasn't lazy, he wasn't a fool, and he meant to be honest, but he was intimidated by that miserable sort of departmental life. He didn't know anything else. He thought working in a store or bank not respectable. Living with the Bixbys gave me a kind of low-spiritedness I had never known before. During my days of waiting for appointments, I used to walk for hours around the fence that shuts in the White House grounds and watch the Washington Monument color with those beautiful sunsets until the time when all the clerks streamed out of the Treasury Building and the War and Navy, thousands of them, all more or less like the couple I lived with. They seemed to me like people in slavery who ought to be free. 
I remember the city chiefly by those beautiful, hazy, sad sunsets, white columns and green shrubbery, and the monument shaft still pink while the stars were coming out. I got my interview with the director of the Smithsonian at last. He gave me his attention. He was interested. He told me to come again in three days to meet Dr. Ripley, who was the authority on prehistoric Indian remains and had excavated a lot of them. Then came an exciting and rather encouraging time for me. Dr. Ripley asked the right sort of questions and evidently knew his business. He said he'd like to take the first train down to my mesa, but required money to excavate, and he had none. There was a bill up before Congress for an appropriation. We'd have to wait. I must use my influence with my representative. He took my pottery to study it. I never got it back, by the way. There was a Dr. Fox connected with the Smithsonian who was also interested. They told me a good many things I wanted to know and kept me dangling about the office. Of course, they were very kind to take so much trouble with a green boy, but I soon found that the director and all his staff had one interest which dwarfed every other. There was to be an international exposition of some sort in Europe the following summer, and they were all pulling strings to get appointed on juries or sent to international congresses, appointments that would pay their expenses abroad and give them a salary in addition. There was indeed a bill before Congress for appropriations for the Smithsonian, but there was also a bill for exposition appropriations, and that was the one they were really pushing. They kept me hanging on through March and April, but in the end it came to nothing. Dr. Ripley told me he was sorry, but the sum Congress had allowed the Smithsonian wouldn't cover an expedition to the Southwest. Virginia Ward, who had been so kind to me, went out to lunch with me that day and admitted I had been let down. She was almost as much disappointed as I. She said the only thing Dr. Ripley really cared about was getting a free trip to Europe and acting on a jury and maybe getting a decoration. And that's what the director wants, too, she said. They don't care much about dead and gone Indians. What they do care about is going to Paris and getting another ribbon on their coats. The only other person besides Virginia who was genuinely concerned about my affair was a young Frenchman, a lieutenant attached to the French embassy, who came to the Smithsonian often on business connected with this same international exposition. He was nice and polite to Virginia, and she introduced him to me. We used to walk down along the Potomac together. He studied my photographs and asked me such intelligent questions about everything that it was a pleasure to talk to him. He had a fine attitude about it all. He was thoughtful, critical, and respectful. I feel sure he'd have gone back to New Mexico with me if he'd had the money. He was even poorer than I. I was utterly ashamed to go home to Roddy, dead broke after all the money I'd spent, and without a thing to show for it. I hung on in Washington through May, trying to get a job of some sort to at least earn my fare home. My letters to Blake had been pretty blue for some time back. If I'd been sensible, I'd have kept my troubles to myself. He was easily discouraged, and I knew that. At last, I had to write him for money to go home. It was slow in coming, and I began to telegraph. I left Washington at last, wiser than I came. I had no plans. I wanted nothing but to get back to the Mesa and live a free life and breathe free air and never, 
never again to see hundreds of little black-coated men pouring out of white buildings. Queer, how much more depressing they are than workmen coming out of a factory. You've been listening to Tom Outlaw's Story by Willa Cather. I hope you'll join me next week again for the conclusion. In the meantime, be well, be happy. All the best. Thank you.